Metal Lunatics. This is John Gallagher from Raven, and you are listening to Focus on Metal. Focus Hey, Metalheads, Scott here. And Richie. And uh, we are convening this week to talk about um, some Maiden. You know, and it's the 40th anniversary of Number of the Beast. Actually, they re-released it as a commemorative on cassette. But uh, even Did you even, play it? I have not bought it, oh, believe it or not. I'm shocked. I know, I'm shocked too. Um, <laughs> I still, if they have any left, I still might. But, um, <laughs> but I mean, look at the pile of vinyl yeah, in the last couple of weeks. So, um, yeah, so, you know, I just, you know, kind of over the break and during the winter and stuff, I did kind of a lot of just kind of looking at Maiden and, and watching some old interviews and a whole bunch of other stuff. And, and so even before the whole like 40th anniversary of, of number piled up, I, I just got really fired up on, on Maiden. And I thought, you know, maybe 2022 is the, uh, would be the year of Maiden here on Focus on Metal. Kind of like what we did back with, uh, what we did with Saxon. You know, we took a couple albums at a time and we went through the discography. And and uh, that was, you know, another one of these bands I kind of get fired up on. And, and Maiden is another one. And, and actually, Saxon kind of dovetails into the, into the uh, early Maiden obsession. It's just kind of a, a really interesting thing, I think, to maybe go through and just do a little bit more of a dive into that. And... Um, you know, just, I guess, you know, you even talking about, you know, the last album we'll talk about this week will be Number, which is kind of like their first big breakthrough here in the States. You know, you did ask about it. It's a relevant question, kind of, you know, what happened in, in 82? You know, what was the landscape like in 82? So we kind of, we looked at a few of the albums that were out there. So, you know, you had a few in there. So, yeah, Screaming, which is kind of a a leap for, for Priest, right, from, from prior, um, uh, Blackout. Blackout was a big one for me. I mean, Scorpions. So I graduated high school in 82. So we were playing the crap out of Blackout all the time. And um, I still play that a lot. The great, just, just a great, great album. But you have that. You've got, you know, Anvil, Metal on Metal. So that was kind of, a, you know, one there, right? Shanker, Assault Attack. That's a good one for me. Uh, Iron Fist by Motorhead. Restless and Wild. Actually, Saints and Sinners, Whitesnake. Okay. is on there too um, which you get a, some stuff that you hear later on that everybody knows and they here I go to again it, and yeah. crying in the rain and you listen to it on Saints and Sinner and it sounds rather dirgy rather than, than uh, different lyrics and, yeah and just <laughs> and even just kind of really got the the organ going and all that but uh, Rainbow Straight Between the Eyes Diver Down Van Halen not their finest moment but uh, did come out there Black Tiger because if I think Black Tiger too much I'll be singing that in my head all night long uh, Corridors of Power, that one, I remember when I got that one, vinyl, I got that over there. That one definitely blew me away. Uh, that was just a, just a great, great album from Gary Moore. Was Signals 82, Rush? Uh, or was that 83? I, I think that was 83. Oh, okay. Yes, it was 83 because I went to the concert in Worcester with Rob Pepin, and that would have been 
in college. All right. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, you're right. I mean, there's just a lot of good albums that came out in 82. A lot of great albums came out in 82. I mean, even, I mean, I think of Saxon Eagle has landed 82 as well. Um, Abominog came out. Mechanics from uh, UFO. From UFO on there. Uh, Screaming Blue Murder. Uh, that was another great one from, from Girl School. I went out and bought that one. So, and it kind of, you know, 82 was interesting too because I can remember all through high school, I was really a lot about either kind of core American hard rock like Aerosmith. And then if you were to look at my notebook, it would have been covered with all kinds of New Album band logos. And one of them is, is obviously was Maiden as well. You know, those first ones, 80 and 81, they kind of had this this one sound. And then 82, they switched singers and they kind of have this other thing. So, I mean, I think it's relevant to kind of look at the landscape. I think that was a good suggestion on your part. Just want to cut in here really quick. If you really want to dive into uh, 1982, just to let you know that uh, our friends over at the Decibel Geek podcast actually did a two-parter of 1982 year in review it's their episodes 277 and uh, 278 and you can get that by heading up to decibelgeek.com and then in the podcast select year in reviews and it's like on page two or three but again episodes 277 278 of the uh, pretty damn awesome decibel geek podcast as they delve into two entire episodes on just 1982 well, it, it- when you think of all those albums, yeah, the one thing they nearly all have in common is MTV hadn't ruined them then. They weren't. They weren't like focusing on the videos mm-hmm. more than the music. Right. They, they still had their, for the most part, they still had their core sound. A lot of those bands. True. True. And and even with anything that was kind of a promo film done for them. Um, they were terrible. It, yeah, it wasn't a big <laughs> production. It was like really, you know. Stuff that even made you go, "What the hell am I watching?" Um, but you're right; that's a that's a good point. You know, their 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 MTV was just at least you know in this area we were just getting kind of cable, and and MTV was still kind of low volume, and and these kind of bands really weren't on there that much. I mean, uh, there was some Scorps in there, and I do remember uh, a couple of videos off of Priest as well. But you got kind of that really dark, grainy crap from like um, Rainbow would have been on there. Rainbow it? was on there definitely, yeah. With yeah Jewel and Turner, yeah, because they were more in that pop yeah. thing, yeah. yeah. But something like Accept, you know, it wasn't what you got when you got to Balls to the Wall. It was kind of this more grainy, like really and bizarre stuff. Some Waterhead, forget it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, so you know, interesting year, and and uh, so like I said too, it was you know, eighty two year I graduated, and uh, so. Back then, unlike now, it was, you know, one, you couldn't afford all the albums that you wanted to get back then. It wasn't like, again, the giant-ass stack I have sitting over there from the last couple of weeks. That would have been months in, in yeah. 82 for me. You borrowed stuff and you taped it. TDKC 90s, that's, baby. That's how you listen to a lot oh, of music. One on each side. I, yep. I commented on Twitter to somebody about that the other day. I can't remember. Tony Franklin, I think it was. Actually, I even commented on, um, because you don't really get blank cassettes anymore, too. And they did, when there was a thing when Maiden did make the announcement about the tape, one of the things I did write back was, thinking about it, like, what am I going to play it on? I'm like, I'm going to have to break out my my Tascam (laughs) 4-track to play the cassette. (laughs) And then set it up right so I don't erase anything. 
you know, unlike 82, it would have been like, oh, yeah, well, I got the player in the car and I got one in the house and, and all that. But, uh, yeah, well, it is an interesting on, landscape. If you bought the number of each cassette now, why would you want to play it on cassette? Because. Why Come not? Come on. You have it on everything else. <laughs> well, that's true. I do. <laughs> but, yeah, it, I, you're right. It, it, it was a pretty interesting year. But it is one of those things, too, where you played things enough that in some cases you even remember song order because you played it so much. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, as far as for you, I mean, I know you were kind of a little bit later into some of this stuff. So, like, where were you at, when, 82? Okay, I need to ask you first. What was the first new Maiden record you bought? Killers. Okay. Killers. So now, we that's you, right? Um, the first Maiden album I heard. It's this one right here. Okay, literally this one. Literally mm-hmm. this one. <laughs> the first Maiden album I ever heard was Live After Death. But okay. The, the weird thing is, I have a memory of watching Top of the Pops in 82. Okay. And I used to religiously watch it. It used to be on every Thursday night, 7 o'clock, BBC One. And it was one of the biggest shows on TV in England. Sure. And you didn't have a billion channels like people no, do now either. No. So. so they were very powerful in, in how they promoted stuff in breaking bands. Yeah. And they didn't really play a lot of metal. And I, I, I just remember that, uh, Run to the Hills was on. And they never they didn't have the band in the studio, but they'd just play like 20 seconds or 30 seconds of it. And for some weird reason, I, 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 I was remembering that. I was 11 years old. And wow. I can still remember it. Yeah. Now, I didn't know I'd become a, a full-blown metalhead couple of years down the line but and maybe it stood out for me because it was so different to everything else like fucking ultravox and, and <laughs> you know paul right. young and yeah um well kim wilde and all that sort of stuff and then here's iron maiden with run <laughs> to the hills and it's like whoa so that that left uh, an impact on me mm. um but live after death was the first full record i heard mm. and i absolutely fell in love with that and so the first new album that Maiden album that I would have bought was somewhere in time. Okay. Um, but the funny thing is, I only knew all the the, the Dickinson versions mm-hmm. of Diano because sure. I was listening to the Live After Deaths, so right? Ratchild and Phantom of the Opera and Running Free and all that. That a Dickinson singing, right? And I remember, I think it was for Christmas, I bought two Iron Maiden cassette tapes, and the first one was Power Slave because Live After Death was recorded on on that. Tour. Uh-huh. And the second one was Killers. Uh-huh. And I, I remember listening to Power Slave and absolutely loving it. All, all the songs, the Jewelist, Flash of the Blade, everything. I thought it was the fucking best thing ever. And I remember putting on Killers and I was like, that's not Bruce Dickinson. <laughs> <laughs> nope. I was, I was completely yeah. unaware that they had a different singer on the first two yeah. records. And I'm like, what the fuck? <laughs> 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 yeah, so I mean, it, it, it definitely, um, you know, they're they're definitely kind of embedded to me. And, and like I said, you know, the first one that I actually, you know, got purchased owned was was Killers. I remember being up uh, Belfast, Maine. It was in a back then when even like drugstores and stuff had albums. And I remember whatever the the local drugstore was up there, they had a small record selection. I saw that cover and went, "Holy shit!" I I I have to have this and then had to wait until we got back home to actually play it. But, uh, yeah, that's, like I said, literally that's the, 
I still have that album. But, uh, you know, let's, let's start, go back to kind of the, the first one, mm-hmm. which I think is a little bit different even from Killers. You know, so 1980 for, for the, you know, the kickoff with Maiden and, um, you know, self-titled one, never doesn't, doesn't even chart in the U.S. In fact, you know, I went back and I looked too because I was curious and it's actually never been certified anything in the U.S., believe it or not. And, and I also, I, I remember hearing this before too, but it just slipped my mind was that Canada's always been like incredibly good for Maiden. So this, this actually went platinum in Canada. What are sales in Canada now for platinum? Is it 100,000? Um, I don't know what it is. It's definitely not a million. Yeah, I'm not sure what it is. Just fucking Google it. Yeah, just fucking Google it. Yep, of course, just fucking Google it. And uh, that would be that in Canada, a gold award is 40,000 units and a platinum is 80,000 units. And hey, just to throw it in there as well, multi-platinum is 160,000 units and diamond 800,000 units. So as Richie was alluding to, yeah, it definitely is a, a little bit lower to attain that stuff than it is here in the U.S. where gold is 500,000 and platinum is a million. Now we all learn together. But it went platinum. It went platinum in the U.K. as well. Yeah, I actually hit four, number four in the U.K. top position. Like I said, U.S. never never did anything on this one at all. But they had the following then. They had the... They were, I'm not saying they were big, but they, you know, people knew who they were. If you're in the metal scene in England back then, and oh yeah, I mean, when that album came out, they, people already knew who the band were. Yeah, I mean, you had you had the Soundhouse tapes before that. You had you know all the stuff that was going. So yeah, at this point, the audio workstation decided that it just didn't want to record, and I have no idea why. And it does this every so often. And usually nobody knows about it because I'm just clever enough to piece it all together and make it seamless and life is good. And uh, this week I just decided, screw it. It's true disclosure that, uh, yeah, we were having a great conversation, probably did another 10 minutes of uh, convo before I realized, oh, crap, for some reason it crashed. So we're going to pick off from where it left off, but you may notice that for a few minutes at least, there doesn't seem to be as much of that conversational spontaneity, and that's because we're just trying to uh, literally recreate what we just talked to each other about. On in the uh, all the trade publications and all that stuff, and you know, you had Malcolm writing about him, you had um, Jeff Barton. Jeff Barton, thank you, writing about him. I mean, yeah, just just a huge, huge thing going on with with the band. So uh, I think you know, I think definitely that's part of what made it happen you know for england and not really i mean i think you know america was pretty slow to catch on to I me mean, think about you know when lars he talks about the certain people that he would meet and these were the guys that would know about this stuff and not everybody else so yeah i think like i said i think it was a cool album you know going back and getting that one after uh was definitely uh was good you could tell it was it was a stepping stone to killers uh songs were well constructed because obviously they've been doing them for a long time through a bunch of different people too i mean if you go back to that early history of the band it's kind of the revolving dennis stratton spot with all kinds of people and different, different drummers singers, and different, different, different singers yeah, yeah. Every, i mean it was really you know i mean really the only consistent is is steve, steve harris with the whole thing and then you know dave murray but dave even dave murray is kind of a ladder member from everybody else but still you know, coming together and, and getting this done. You know, I, I think for me off of there is is running free, you know, playing bass a lot then, 
So really to have that song pop and go, wow, this is awesome. You know, bass players forward and all that. Because when you think about a lot of hard rock albums, metal albums at that time too, because of having to play them on a turntable, you couldn't have a lot of bass because the needles would bump around and crop. So they, they tended to not really do that. So you only had a few bands that really, you were like, ooh, and, and you know, Maiden ended up being one. Rush was another one, obviously, um, with, and especially with only the three players. So you really started to get that. And then, um, but Running Free for me was, was big. And then the other one was, uh, was Sanctuary. In fact, when I did uh, our first studio slash label back in the day, it was, uh, we called it Sanctuary Studio. <laughs> and uh, just yeah, I really I I really like that song as well. I mean, everything on there is good. Yeah, uh, but those were my those were actually my standouts. And then the odd thing is, is kind of like I have like one good standout on each side of the album. But. They still play. Well, Iron Maiden, yep. Sa- Sanctuary. Yep, they're normally at the very end of the set. Right. Um, don't play Phantom of the Opera in a while. R- are running free. Yeah. Um. But I would say that I reckon they've done all these songs with Bruce except Transylvania. Yeah. And you know what's cool, too, is that Bruce always does a really good job of singing the earlier stuff, too. That, you know, he could come in with the attitude of, like, it's below me or I don't. But even though it doesn't have that same initial kind of vocal sound he does still sing a lot of it true to the melodies so that it, it keeps it intact it isn't yeah. like you know it's a different voice but it isn't a different entire song yeah why do you think now you you were into this when it came out mm. so you're getting into maiden and saxon and scorpions and all these bands what made them sound different to everyone else? Or did they just have better songs and they sounded like everyone else? So, you know, part of it is, I think the same thing, and not knowing kind of what was even going on in England at the time, was that these songs sounded doable. So To play yourself? Yeah. You know, so the, it, there wasn't a lot of studio stuff going on with it. Um, it wasn't the kind of three minutes in a safety pin of a, of a punk song, which was kind of like, that was kind of like, but these had something else to it. And it just, it had that thing that allowed you to easily connect with it. And it got you fired up every time you listened to it too. So it wasn't kind of like, uh, this is like kind of the same corporate thing or running through the paces or anything like that. You could you could hear the excitement and kind of the genuine nature of the songs. And that's kind of it. That's what that's what hooked me into it was that. It was even the whole thing of some of the some of the Aerosmith stuff is that it's almost like at any second the whole thing could just fall apart. <laughs> and yet they're just really good songs. Yeah. Uh so it, it's that it's that whole thing and and that's what that's what kind of attracted me to it. What do you think of the sound of that record? Cuz Steve Harris has said he it's, doesn't like the sound of it. It's definitely not as good as it can be. Absolutely. It's not as good as what came after. True. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Definitely. Yeah, it was, you know, and I was even, you know, you know, like they tweaked it a little for this, but I don't even think any more of these are available. This is the the anniversary uh, picture, disc. picture disc. Yeah, 
Um, they even clean the back photo up more. Now, look how many songs is on that. Yeah, eight. Yeah, and you've no, got nine. No sanctuary. No sanctuary. <laughs> yep. That's the one I had when I was... When right, I, so the UK version. It. UK yeah. version didn't have sanctuary yep. on it. I didn't notice that till just now. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I said I, I like that. But, you know, my when I, when I look at the first three that we're doing right now, the, the next one definitely is the one that probably means the most to me. Um, in the it, whole catalog? Well, not in the whole catalog, but at least in these three, definitely. And again, another springtime deal. I think or th- I think it's either that or February, March, but eighty one for killers. And you can kind of see the the Derek Riggs thing now where he's developing on the cover. There's a lot of little stories going on in there. And like when when you talk about your first one being somewhere in time, it's like, oh well or your your second after Live After Death. Even Live After Death has a lot of things going, but if you weren't really into Maiden yet, you don't identify everything that you see on the cover. But then I could imagine you picking up somewhere in time and going, ooh, what's, like, all these little things. Oh, yeah. that, I mean, that Power picture slave. is packed. Power Slave as well. Power Slave is another one, yeah. Magnifying glass. Um, but it's, you know, but this one here, I think, you know, you start getting the cover. Unlike the first one where the back, you have this live shot where you're like, what? I can't even tell what's going on. You got Who's this who? nice big, like, Oh, wow. Kind of like that feeling of opening up Kiss Alive 2 and that big gatefold and seeing that. And that's kind of the impact of this back cover, too, was like, oh, crap, you know, there they are. And you can really see them. You know, and again, they weren't really getting much music trade press or anything like this in 81 either. Uh, What's interesting with this one, too, is that it actually did worse in the U.K. than the debut. And and it did chart in America. um, I think it was like, I don't know. Like 78 or something but it actually went from I think being number one in the UK for the first one down to or maybe it was four down to like 12 which is interesting but you know I you know again because this was this one that you know saw this one in the store bought this and took it home and had to wait and all that and just played this thing over and over again and it's also funny you think about nowadays how people think about music and everything I can remember bringing this album in to high school. And when some people saw this album, they refused to talk to me anymore because of the demonic imagery on the cover. (laughs) It was like people were like scared. I'm like, it's music. I mean, maybe if I had brought in Venom. But yeah, people, there were people that would no longer speak to me. Because of this album cover, not even hearing the music or anything, or even hearing seeing titles or anything like that, uh, I just remember just a lot with the, with this album. And so, yeah, this was from the first three. This one really means like the most out of the three. And just I can just remember putting this thing on my shitty record player and just looking at this cover over and over again and examining everything and reading everything and uh, just again just just a killer. You know, killer, uh, killer, killer album. And uh, I mean, for me on this one, it's Wrathchild is definitely the, when I heard that, it was like, holy crap. That, you know, so that's definitely my big one there. And then, and then the other one that's on here is Murders in the Room Org. For some reason, something about that one just stuck with me. Yeah, I just, I think Killers to me is, yeah, out of the three is, is kind of my, my big one for this, this whole time period. Um, I'm even wearing my uh, 
anniversary, one of my anniversary shirts. I can't find my killer's one. So you look at the back cover of both albums. And yeah. They both got live shots. They do, except that the, the, the one on the first one has got a very murky, yeah. you know, you can't really see it. And, and, and to be fair, if you go back to any of the video from that earlier time frame too, and you look at the stuff where they had Ed the head, you know, with the bleeding skull going on, dripping on, that's the kind of kind of picture quality that any of those old videos have too. But then this, like I said, that one there is like, holy crap, it's, it's, uh, you know, Kiss Alive 2 all over again. Yeah. You know, without, without the makeup and the you, staircases. You think of any metal band now, and they'd, they'd love to have a mascot that they could put on an album cover that yep. sells album covers itself. And they don't have to put a picture of themselves on any uh-huh. of their album covers. Yeah. You can just put Eddie on it. Yep. And pe- people would know, right, Right. Iron Maiden. And think about this, too. That I mean, they developed this as part of their live show. So it wasn't a uh, it wasn't a merchandising doge or anything like that. It was purely a, hey, we got a great idea. We have this thing. It's a cool effect. And then they developed this into this character. That They had a roadie used to come out with the mask in yeah, the very beginning. Yeah. And then they had like a face behind the stage. And yep. then it ended but up on the albums. But it, but it had nothing to do with merchandising. It no. was just It was just part of the band. And I mean, now Eddie's everywhere. But then it was just it was just a character. And it helped to, to display the band. Speaking about great band characters, I uh, did roll out on Twitter about a week or so ago asking about, you know, who people thought was the best metal band mascot not named Eddie. And I got some great responses back from some uh, pretty awesome people out there. But, uh, you know, if you don't follow us on Twitter, you never saw it or whatever, I'd be interested to hear what people have to say. So if you have what you think is a great band mascot not named Eddie and like to throw that name in the hat, then you can uh, hit me up at scott at focusonmetal.net. And uh, who knows, maybe we'll end up doing some kind of episode where we talk about great metal mascots and all the answers we get back will form the basis of what we talk about. You know, as opposed to, you know, Kiss or another band where everything has to do with, okay, how do we do a follow on with it? But I mean, they've done very well with that. And I think, I think it was a really smart thing to recognize the value on the first one and then carry it over and then just continue to carry it over and then just really develop it and develop it. It, it was jarring to me when it got to um, Power Slave, when it suddenly became, instead of being like a character, it became a monolith instead, which was kind of like, that one seemed weird to me having gone along. But still, I think overall, I think this is also a good development. I mean, I mean some of these, they were already playing when the self-title came out, but you can tell now, too, that better production, somebody that's really syncing up to what they're thinking as well and pushing it forward, I think that's that album is just fantastic. Oh, there's two things on this record that I thought were a big upgrade. Uh, Martin Birch is one. Yep, absolutely. And Adrian Smith was another one. Yep. Um, I, I, then, I know Dennis Stratton, I think he was on the road somewhere on, on tour and... He had a row with Steve and Rod over something, and he was gone. Yeah. They got Adrian in. And uh, he became a massive part of their songwriting as well. That's what I was going to say, is that he's just an incredible 
contributor to the songwriting. He writes the commercial stuff. Yes. Is what I, I, yeah. I, I say about Adrian. Yeah, which he is interesting because, songs. you know, coming from, you know, he added the other band that he really expected when they had asked him before to join, he was kind of like, no, I'm going to stay with these guys. He's an urchin. Yeah. And he never did the same kind of commercial impact with that, yet he's able to, was able to plug into it for Maiden, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, definitely. You know? But, but the only track, when I, as I said earlier on, the, only, the first album I had was Live After Death. Yeah. There's only one song on Live After Death on this is Ratchild. Really? That's it? Yeah. Huh. There's nothing else on it. And you just said that it didn't do as well as the first album. And the first album on Live After Death's got Running Free, yep. Phantom of the Opera, uh, and Iron Maiden. Hmm. It's got three songs. This has only got one on it. That's, yeah, I'd never thought about it from that perspective. That's yeah. interesting, though. Yeah. yeah. It's it's a great album. There's some fantastic songs on it. Um, I think it sounds better than the, than the debut. But yeah. pe- people, some people say that Maiden's debut album is the best thing they ever did. And that's fine. That's if they want to think that. But yeah, I think there's a certain rawness definitely. to that um, that I think people do like. And it is it is kind of of that time and that period and that scene and all that. I think that's that's true. Um, and I think that if that debut hadn't done as well as it had done in England and some of the other countries as well, they would have never been able to get the horsepower to do what they needed to do in Killers. But I think also... Once you get to Killers and you start to get this group around you that's thinking about the way the same way you do, I think that some of the songwriting changes and you start to see a little bit more of the prog influence coming in from Steve as well. And, and of course, now it's very prevalent. But back then, if you start to listen, you can be like, oh, yeah, I can hear this. I can hear that. Uh, but, you know, there is a, there is kind of a sonically a change, you know, in that, I think, that... Um, Definitely precipitates the uh, kind of the big change that hits us in 1982, which is, leaving of course, uh, Number of the Beasts. Yep. So last one on the Harvest imprint. And believe it or not, last one to be released on 8-track tape. First, like, big impact in America as well. And, you know, this one, I think definitely things like, uh, you know, Run to the Hills. I remember that being on MTV. And so that was definitely a big one. And, uh, you know, what else was in there? Number the Beast was in there. Uh, I can't think if... I don't know if they were doing Palo Beanie name then. But, yeah, but there was... Between Number of the Beast and Run to the Hills, those were definitely two big ones. I think The Prisoner, too. And uh, just, yeah, again, I think big, big impact with this one. Great album cover. Yeah, it is. Great I mean, album cover. It's uh, mm. iconic. Yeah, it's it's definitely. I think one thing that's that's interesting on this is the whole idea of, you know, when you first look at it and you don't see the strings, and then and you just kind of, you know, what's going on with it? Then it's one again. It's one of these things where you have this giant twelve by twelve piece of art. You put this on. He didn't walk away. He didn't go do housework or whatever else. He had to tend the turntable. So he only had, you know, 20 minutes. So you, so you listened and you looked at the cover and you read the back and, you know, all of that. And, and again, still just rice paper. No no oh, lyrics, wow. no nothing. But, you you know, you just did that. So, um, 
you know, you had a lot of time to concentrate on it and see what was going on. And then, of course, the back. Now you kind of finally see a, a band posing with the cartoon, with all that. Yeah, I think just even just you just start to hear a lot more of of what's going on. I mean, some of the stuff like 22 Acacia Avenue, that could have gone on Killers, you know. But something like Run to the Hills, no, that's that's kind of kind of a new era i think for the band for that but so this one i think if you really look into it you can see some things that could be on one and and some things that could be on another primarily i think more so that it's belongs on here and doesn't have the route back to the earlier ones but still i think it's just cool i think also that uh you know i remember with with killers again like i said you sit there you're reading it. You're examining it. I, it's, it was like, who's this headmaster guy? This Martin Headmaster Birch. Birch. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, I, to this day, I just remember that being like, yeah, but you must have known who he, he was from Deep Purple, and no, not really. Written? No, you're kidding me. No, I really. It was kind of like no one really concentrated on producers or anything like that, and and yeah, things like. You know, if you were to say Jack Douglas, I'm like, oh yeah, oh, you know, that's if you were that's to say Bob Ezrin, you yeah, yeah, you know. Um, but I really hadn't got into some of these other like people that I was seeing as a producer that would kind of come later on. But that, that was because, one. Do you where think I'm one just of the like, reasons you didn't recognize who Martin Birch was because he was English? Like Bob Ezra, you mentioned Bob Ezra and Jack Douglas, mm-hmm. like they're American producers producing these big American bands. Correct. So you, those names would probably stand out to you more right. than right. Martin Birch. But then when I see this one, and, and, and again, Martin Headmaster Birch, I'm yeah. like, God damn, that's cool. Like he must <laughs> be like the, like just a beat down taskmaster. Like you just imagine, you, you kind of, you put this kind of thing around the guy about, you know, maybe what he does and, and to have a, a band. I mean, no band up till then really called out a producer in that way. You know they what I mean? Put a picture of him on the album. Yeah. You know, but then you know, then so this one is uh, it's it's they're calling him Farmer Birch on this one. <laughs> so again, they kind of keep up this like, who the hell is this Martin Birch guy? Which is great too. So you you kind of have this this team, album to album. It's like the same team. You start to get a comfort level, and uh, even when they're starting to switch people in the band. All the rest of it's there. You get, you know, the same guy doing the artwork. You got that same Iron Maiden splashed across the top. There's just a certain consistent, like, high level of of comfort wrapped around in this music that's got all kinds of twists and turns and just hits you. Yeah. Did you know before you bought this record that Paul Diano was gone? Yes. Um, did you know who Bruce Dickinson was? Yes. From Samson. Yes. You already knew. Yes. Were you pissed when you found out Diano was gone? No, I was I was more curious because it was kinda I mean, if you listen to back then Bruce Bruce on Samson and you listen to him on Maiden, you're kinda like he went from Bruce Bruce to the air raid siren. And so vocally it didn't it was I was more like how is the guy from Samson going to fit in? And, and is this is this going to start to be kind of more bluesy noodling or what's going to happen? And um, I just wasn't sure how he was going to fit in. So I was kind of more curious of it than anything else. Mm. You mentioned songs there that, you know, 
you felt that Bruce could sing, mm-hmm. that maybe Paul couldn't. The one that stands out for me on this album is Children of the Damned. Uh-huh. I, can't, I can't imagine Paul Diano singing that. True. Yeah, that's true. the one that stands out. Some of the rest of them, definitely. Well, that yeah. that that big scream at the end, at the beginning of uh, "Run to the Hills." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, when this album is great, it's it is great, and a lot of people would you know think this is like one of the best metal albums of all time. Uh-huh. Right? I don't even think this is the best made hidden album personally. Right. Um, most of it is great, but I, the likes of Gangland. Yeah. yeah. And Invaders, I think it's not the best opener. Yeah, and there's, and there's a thing too with... If you look, at the, if you look at the other two albums, yeah. I think Prowler's a better opener, yeah. and I think Ratchild's a better opener. Yeah, they just, they just come in and they hit you. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other thing too, which is interesting, is that, you know, the first one, they're touring primarily in England, right? A little yeah. bit into the continent, but primarily in England. Granted, it's shitty touring because they're going all over the place in the green van. And so it's it's a slog, but they're working these things out, and they're just writing them, right? The second one, better touring situation, but they're still not really doing, you know, international touring. Now they get to this, where they're starting to tour a lot more. There's I think a they lot did some international line. touring on Killers. I think they went out with Priest. And I think Made in Japan yes, was... but was I, think even, I think if you look at the dates, they're... They're kind of sporadic, like through the U.S. Oh, okay. Yeah, they wouldn't be going for a three-month jaunt around the U.S. Yeah, so I don't think it was really as developed. And then, so suddenly you get like a new singer, limited time. And so I think some of these things are probably either, you know, leftovers, some jams or whatever. And then they're just kind of like, oh, shit, how are we going to get this kind of all together? Because when you when you get to what comes after this, that next one, you have like, well, this, there's more, to my opinion, more fully formed things. Like this one has a couple of big, really well-formed, holy crap, that's a great song kind of moments. But like to your point, there's other albums that have more of those on there, or in some cases could even be in across the board. All of them are, are really memorable if you're a big fan. Yeah, but again, I'm going back with this album. Mm. The, ba- the band, you know, the band had already released albums after it, so this one wasn't new mm-hmm. as as much as some of the rest of them were. So I'm I'm going to have an emotional attachment to the to the newer ones. I think. Sure, yeah. Um, Hello, be thy name is probably one of my favorite Maiden songs. Yeah, it's, I think Nico McBrain is the one Maiden song that he absolutely loves to play. He always uh-huh. wants it in the set. The Prisoner is a fantastic song. Yeah, I think what's interesting too, so you start talking about some of those too, is that one thing that does link this album to the other ones as well is that the themes are the same. They're they're like, they're you really aren't getting into um, like any kind of war themes or any, it's still like gritty, either like horror or street life or things like that is still what's prevalent in there with like run to the hills kind of being the only difference. Yeah. You know, yeah. the other ones are like, I, I think they're still pretty much, there's a link thematically back to the first two. Hmm. I think a lot of that is Steve Harris as well. He's the leader of the band. Yeah, I think so. He want, He's looking for an improvement, but with a consistency. 
mm-hmm. as well. Like, like they want to get consistently better with each other. Right. Well, I, I think too he's got a he's got one thing. He's got a group of people, and you kind of you write what you know, right? So now he's got a new guy, and they're getting to know each other. And I think it's only after that where he realizes, like, wow, Bruce is a freaking history nut. Like, we could, you know, and, and Steve's always kind of had that bent, too. So, okay, now we can kind of maybe go with some other stuff where you can be really clever about your lyrics because you're, you know, both, you know, history guys. Yeah. I mean, one other interesting thing with this one, probably you notice in the center, is that this is, so Killers has got like a straight EMI imprint on it. And then this one has, you know, everything on one side, and then the other side has Eddie as a center imprint. Mm. So so you can tell even like budgetarily they're getting allowed to do a little bit more on the packaging. Even though this is still like I said this is the last one that comes out on on the Harvest label. Yeah. The other thing you notice when you're looking at the writing credits on this it's dominated by Steve Harris. Mm-hmm. Um Adrian Smith is a co-writer on The Prisoner and 22 Acacia Avenue. Dickinson has no writing credits at all. Right. That soon changed. Uh, for the next album and moving forward. Uh, nothing from Dave Murray. And even Clyde Burr's got a, a, a writing credit, but it's Steve Harris was the dominating songwriter back yeah. then. Yeah, absolutely. By by a, a long way, a long shot. Yeah. Like he had his hooks in everything to do with that band. And he, he still does. Still does. Yeah, he does. <laughs> he still does. He asks any of <laughs> the other Maiden guys now, Steve's band, Steve's band. Yeah, yeah, it's... Which is, you know, is amazing that, uh, you know, he still has that kind of control over the entire band when almost everybody's been there for so long. When was the first time you saw him live? Was it The Number of the Beast? I actually, I don't remember what the first one was. Yeah, I don't honestly remember which one it was. Okay. All right. I'm just, I'm just curious. I put up a post, you know, every so often I put up a post of Maiden and... Mm. I was there, and I'm, I'm like, bastard. <laughs> <laughs> so anything about the World Slavery Tour, I have all these people posting you know, ticket stubs. Mm. They were at the Long Beach arena shows, and they showed their ticket stub, and I'm like, you fucking bastard. I'll tell you, I was, <laughs> I, I think you predicted this too, because um, usually you know me pretty well. I did, I did the other day, I'm like, you know, I know I've seen the tour already, I wonder if there's still any tickets left at the DCU Center. Oh, so the other gone. the other day, I was like, "Oh, oh, there's some seats here and some seats there." But I'm looking, and they're all anything that's worth doing. They're all certified resale, and it's like I am not paying that no, price. Not a fuck. You know, some of them are, are pretty decent seats, but I, you know, and the thing is, when you go on, you can tell what the rate was for the seat, and then you look at what they're charging, and it's kind of like, no. No, no way. I'm not going to do it, which is, you know, it's unfortunate. But, yeah, I did. I was like, you know, I could do it. It'd be, if I'm in Ashland, it's a short hop. I could, yeah, I could pop over the DCU Center, yeah. And it was like, yeah, I can't. I'm not paying those prices. Mm-hmm. Just not going to do so it. So your favorite out of the first three is Killers. Killers, yeah. Mine is number two. Yeah. And the, the other two are far from shit. There's some fantastic stuff on them, but it's the number of the beast for me. I'm, the, yeah. I'm a Dickinson guy. Um, I like I like the, f- the first two a lot. But yeah, I, I, I think guy. if if I had come in at it the way that you did, then I, it'd probably be highly likely 
that I would be like, oh yeah, I just I like this, I like the sound, and I like the vocals, and the uh, just kind of the overall power of it and everything. But it's Killers just has this other whole other aspect to it that that pulls me into it. The other thing we didn't talk about the number of the beast was um, was the song was a total eclipse. That was a B side, a studio track that I think the band have said over the years that that should have been on the record instead of Gangland. Mm. Um, I would I would agree with the band. Yeah. Um, I know the reissues that they've brought out. They've added that track mm. to it. And that's a really good song as well. Yeah, this is, I said, this is vintage song. Oh, <laughs> no well, that's the original, that. original, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I don't know, I don't know if I'll go and spend the money to get, you know, like 180 gram versions of them or not. But yeah, this was kind of my early, early, early collection crap of them, you know. Could you still have them? Yeah, well, I mean. I've always loved my vinyl, so, mm-hmm. you know, it was always kind of, that was like my, like my prized possession was, you know, all the vinyl. Did you buy, or were it even available over here, the 12-inch singles from any of those albums? They... Made in Japan, even? Did you, did you get that when it came out? So, Made in Japan, yes. The 12-inch singles, you would have to search for them. So, I don't have any of the, I don't think I do. I don't think I have any of the vintage like twelves or the or the sevens. Um, I know the reissues. I have the reissues, yeah. um, which I have some gaps in that too. But they're very hard to find, or people are charging ridiculous asking prices for them. Some of them too, I got just because I absolutely love the artwork on them. So um, yeah, were, it, Derek Riggs did a fantastic job, even on that stuff. He did. It was yeah. It, some of some of, of that stuff could have made album covers. Yeah. Like, that's fucking better than the album cover. Yeah, exactly. So some of them, I, yeah, I, I, I went just because I, I really love that artwork on there. But you would, you could, if you got it right and you went up to, there was up in Nashua. It was right at that point it was where Daddy's Junkie Music used to be. And right now I think there's like, I don't know, there's some other stupid store there. But right next to it was a fantastic record store with a huge import section so a lot of my imports i bought there and if you timed it right you might be able to snag something there um Hmm. otherwise like newbury comics but you had to go into boston it was when they were only on newbury street um because even by the time they get out to the one in framingham that isn't even there anymore it was a huge one you really couldn't find them there mail order I didn't really do mail order. And then occasionally in Chelmsford at Strawberries, if you timed it right too, I would always walk in there and go right to the import bin, which was like, you walked in the door, bang the right. And that's where I got like that first docking album, Breaking the Change as an import. Some of the Saxon ones that I first got, that was, they just happened out, you know, and they had like one copy. And so I would snag them. But there wasn't a lot there. When you got to... You know, 83, 84, then that's when the original records was um, here in Lowell. Not where it is now, but it was in a different spot. Um, and they might have some of that stuff. If you, Again, you just had to hit it on the day and you might have it. But uh, we, I think it's because we're just like we're just far enough out of Boston that you, you didn't really have the same selection as you might have. It's been a potluck, really. You, yeah. you walked in somewhere, fuck. Yeah. Mine. Yeah. 
When did the magazine start covering them? I know the number of the beasts that would have started to get covered in Hit Parade. Or pretty probably. much number of the beasts. So, so first album, nothing. Second album, nothing. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, nothing. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You might get it with uh, one of the more local um, kind of a music tabloid kind of thing, you know, uh, like a freebie that's at the record store type of thing. It might have been in there, but really, you start really weren't getting mainstream. So, you know, so when they started getting coverage for, for number, it was kind of like, oh, shit, like, that's my band. Like, what the hell? Like, now everybody's into them, you know? And, uh, <laughs> I hate them now. Yeah. My sister likes them, so I hate them. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, it was, like I said, I think this was, a you know, the first three, it was pretty good Genesis and um, kind of, I mean, a, a good progression in, in three years of of what they actually got up to, you know? Three years, one new guitar player and a new singer. Yeah. Yeah. That's, pre- that's pretty good going. And yeah. touring. Yeah, and touring. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's that'll make that'll make or break a band. So yeah, it's you know, it's like I said, I think it was it was cool and, and you know, obviously I, I this is what was another one of these bands where it was like, They're gonna put out vinyl, I'm buying it. It was one of the, was one of those bands that locked into that. Mm-hmm. So Anyways, that's kind of a, I don't know, we'll call that a wrap. It's our first year of Maiden show. We're looking at the first three albums, and uh, great to have you down in the studio, and uh, no snow. We won't spend two or three years. Unlike earlier in the week. We will not spend two or three years finishing this. No, we won't. We won't. Um, But I think um, think it's a good start, and, you know, next time we'll do, you know, another two or three, and uh, and I think those are going to definitely, they've got... I think they're definitely more even in you know more in your wheelhouse too. Yeah, you probably have a lot more familiarity yeah. and a lot more ties to those mm-hmm. next three as well. Definitely, and obviously you know their track record on those is really increasing as well. Partly because of coverage, because of videos. When you start talking about like Power Slave, Arrhenius. you mentioned it. World Slavery Tour. I mean, they started to really make these epic tours that people remembered. It was more than just. Long you know, tours. Eddie and stuff and it but but even the stage sets and stuff people yeah, remember yeah. and so I mean they're I mean what other band is is going back and re bringing out a stage set because people want to see it again, right? I mean I would imagine I could see Kiss doing that. Of course now it'd probably be with four people, not them, in makeup. <laughs> <laughs> and they're they're bringing out the yeah, we're gonna bring out the tank set this time and but uh yeah, but I think you know, I think there's a lot more that wraps around that and definitely a lot more coverage in magazines and television and all that stuff as well. And they just become this, you know, massive band. And also at that point too, you know, we talked about it, I guess, and, and good point. Thank you for bringing it up again. You know, you start talking about 82, you look at that as kind of almost in a way a launch pad year. Suck year that we lose Randy Rhodes, but on the other hand, you know, it, it launched a whole bunch of stuff that year. So when you start to get into those years, the number of bands, the signings, the, the, the fact that now you had the music industry and the big people in the music industry paying attention to metal bands, uh, you start to see that too. Definitely. You know, Never. and Maiden was, was really uniquely positioned because they didn't have the issue of 
worrying about managers and stuff. They had Rod Stallwood, right, who stayed with them and they could count on it. And it was kind of really with that, it was it was almost it was just Maiden, too. And, you know, most bands didn't have that. The only other band I can think of that had that same sort of situation was Rush with Ray Daniels. Yes, yes. He was there right from the beginning mm-hmm. and went all the way through. Yep. And Rod Smallwood is the same. And right. Another thing when you look at Maiden, they've had a lot of the same road crew. Like mm-hmm. They're incredibly loyal. Yep. Once you're in with the band yep. and you do a good job. Yep. And you, you start know, to you even see that starting well. with the second album. Yeah. They start writing the road crew on yeah. the album too. Yeah. So yeah, it's true. And yeah, Ray Daniels, that's another great one that, you know, carried through. I mean, you see it with Van Halen, with Noel Monk, that, you know, you get to a point and then after Noel is when you start to get things to start to be a little bit shitty and things get shaky as you go forward. So, um, you know, there are bands that had great managers at the beginning. Like you said, Rush is another great example where you had a, a manager that was pretty much just concentrating the manager on that got, one he, band. He got it. Yeah. Because he was he, he recognized something in the band and he stayed with the band. Right. I mean, it's still, and it's, it's, it was that. I mean, they had Rod, and then at the same time, they had Rod's silent partner, who, again, the same thing, was right in lockstep. So they really had the kind of the behind-the-scenes guy, the front-of-the-scenes guy. So the whole organization centered around them. And to have a band that's got that back team, road crew included, that that undyingly support you as well, I, I mean, that's amazing. And Derek Riggs. Yeah. You can't underestimate the, the, the impact Derek Riggs had on yeah. that band. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we're a little guy, but... Uh, I mean, definitely Fantastic the artwork is, yeah, is, he's, yeah, he's iconic when it comes to album covers. I mean, you know, just having, uh, you know, Ethan up there when, the, when he did his last album and he was so psyched that he got Derek Riggs to do his artwork was like, oh, I can't believe it. You know, he was all excited about it. So yeah, it's very cool. Yeah. Guys, yeah. guy is iconic. Yeah. Cause yeah. his, his paintings on album covers sold albums. You don't, you might not have a clue what the songs are. You looked at that, and you're a young kid, and you're mm-hmm. going, that has to be fucking great. Yep. Yeah, that's what Killers was for me. Exactly. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, that is my perfect example of I bought it because of the cover. Exactly. I want to put that fucking poster on the wall. I want to wear that T-shirt. Mm-hmm. I want people to look at me with this T-shirt on. Yep. Because I think I look fucking cool. <laughs> I'm not yep. a Satanist. Despite <laughs> <laughs> what my shirt has on. <laughs> yep. All right. Like I said, I think that is a good start. Kind mm-hmm. of diet in. Like I said, you know, over the winter during break, I just got, I got psyched up on Maiden again, and um, just thought, you know what, this is kind of a good one we can do, multi-episode project episode. I know you got some other stuff going as well, but uh, anyways, for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a needle in it. This puppy is done. So for myself and me, have yourselves a great metal week, and until we talk to you again, as always. Remember, focus on metal. Everything else is insignificant. You're still here? It's over. Go home.